welcome once again to the Coffee and Heroes Weekly Podcast. We're back with our review show. We are back sans one this time, though. It's back to the dynamic duo. Your host, as always, Alan, from uh, Coffee and Heroes in Belfast, Northern Ireland. Uh, joined as ever by Mr. Marvel, Keith Miller. Good evening, sir, and how are you? I am doing well. Uh, can't complain this, this, this Monday evening when we're recording. Uh, it's a wee bit uh, cooler in Belfast. Sort of missed the sun today. It was a wee bit overcast um, after... So many weeks of great weather, but yeah, great weekend. It was lovely to see yourself and Vicky in person in a non-shop context. I know, and the comic book uh, chat was kept to a minimum. It was it was almost like we were proper adults or something. <laughs> yeah, so we had a lovely, a lovely chilled out weekend of uh, of birthday celebrations. It was uh, my other half, Bruna's birthday on Saturday, and it was Vicky's earlier in the week. So we uh, we went out the four of us to to market to uh, a, a restaurant that you guys have favoured quite a lot. Yeah, it's just around the corner from us, Upper Newton Arge Road. It's called Freight. It's a big favourite of ours. We They helped us through lockdown. We helped them through lockdown. They did a lot of takeaway stuff as well. Just really chilled out vibe. I mean, how often in Belfast can you go out for an 8 o'clock reservation on a Saturday for four people and sit outside for the whole meal? Uh-huh. We were, we were yeah. fairly spoiled there. And then great food, great wine, great company. What more, what more can you ask for? Yeah, 100%. And then we were able to uh, to join a few of the usual suspects at the Brown, Boundary Brewery Tap Room just around the corner. Um, it was lovely to see a few of the a few of the old friends in the shop regulars, um, you know, including uh, Roddy and uh, and and uh, Andy and Martin and uh, and that. So it was uh, it was really really lovely sort of a sort of a week. And we got to run around um, Hillsborough Castle as well. Uh, which was was interesting. Never been been round that way. Apparently, it's the only uh, for those of you who are fans of of the royals. It's the only functioning royal residence in Ireland. Um, good for it. <laughs> I wonder how many listeners of this podcast are fans of the royals. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm not not my cup of tea myself. Though I have thoroughly been enjoying the Crown on uh, on Netflix. That is such a good show. That's because they are fictional characters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Could be, could be certain that. amount of reality, I'm sure. I'm sure. But uh, yeah, no, same for us. Really chilled weekend. It was lovely to go out on a Saturday night. Lovely to, you know, indulge in that. And then Sunday, Vicky and I just went on an absolute massive reading binge. I, I think I must have read somewhere in the region of 30 comics. Vicky beat even me. She was in the region of 40 comics. You know, still reading at one in the morning, just determined to hit that 40 number. And, uh, you know, she, she seemed to be enjoying them. But it was, no, it was good because she was reading a lot of stuff that had built up. So it was like six issues in a row of Walking Dead. It was, you know, three issues in a row of Seven Secrets. It was that kind of thing. So, yeah, just one of those chilled out days. I mean, it's terrible to say the sun was shining all day on Sunday and we barely left the house. Uh, we just, we sat with the windows open, you know, Cricket on in the background, reading comics. You know, it was it was a nice day. It was a nice day. Whereas uh, you have entered a bit of uh, bachelorhood for this week. You know, you've you've, you've the place to yourself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Bruno headed back down south for work on Sunday. Though we did get a we get, we had a lovely uh, bop around uh, Belfast yesterday and uh, went for a dander up the, the Lagantou path and ended up in Botanic Park and got an ice cream and such. So uh, can't really complain. But yeah, so I'm uh, I'm on, I'm on my lonesome. Uh, this week, uh, but I have uh, finished Horizon Zero Dawn on the PlayStation 4 and have picked up uh, Deus Ex uh, Mankind Divided. I say I've picked it up, it's been sitting for years and I've never put it in the machine. 
uh, I've played all the others. So, uh, yeah, trying that. Took me a wee while to get into it, but now the story has sort of grabbed me a bit. And I'm uh, happy as Larry. But I do have a big pile of comic books that I need to get through as well. So uh, that'll maybe be for after this. Yeah, because that was a very big week uh, that you're going to be getting through there because what you'll learn, certainly listening to this pod, is that there wasn't an awful lot of indie titles this week, tons of delays, unfortunately, but that just meant the following week there was double the amount of indie titles. So you can enjoy this nice, slick, sleek podcast tonight and then indulge in the overwrought, overbloated, massive three-hour spectacular next week that it'll no doubt be <laughs> as we tackle 52 yeah. indie titles. But uh. you know, but before we get to that, uh, uh, as ever, we'll look through the news this week. Uh, uh, we noticed a little bit of a expansion of a certain universe that we're big, big fans of. You know, obviously, we chatted before in the pod to separately, of course, to Rodney Barnes and Jason Shaw and Alexander, the two co-creators of Philadelphia, and it was announced this week. We remember certainly when we chatted to Rodney, he was telling us about the universe would expand at some point this year. He was very cryptic. He was enjoying winding us up a little bit. You know, he knew more than us, understandably, but they reached the point this week where they actually announced it. So there's going to be a spin-off series launching in October, because, of course, when else would you launch a horror uh, series but in the month of Halloween? So the <laughs> spin-off is called Nita Hawes Nightmare Blog. No, wait, come back. I know we said blog. It sounds great. Uh, it's the story of Nita Hawes, who is uh, Jimmy Sangster's former lover. And while Jimmy might have left Maryland for the vampire-infested city of Philadelphia, but there is still untold evil lurking the streets of Baltimore. Baltimore, that that sounds familiar, Keith. Yeah, absolutely. They've uh, they have uh, previewed uh, the first couple of pages of this, and it looks as you might expect from James Sean Alexander, absolutely phenomenal. But the very first panel says Baltimore, Maryland, and then the text. Uh, I assume it's Nita Hawes, says my ex, Jimmy Sangster, used to call it Bodymore Murderland. And is a big fan of The Wire, The Wire's set in, uh, I mean, in Baltimore. Wire being the finest piece of televisual entertainment ever made. Uh, and I'm, I'm re-watching it on, on Blu-ray and all that's done is, is it's just reinforced that. But Bodymore Murderland is a piece of graffiti that appears in the... Uh, and the opening, the opening credits of the of the wire uh, on on a wall. So as soon as I saw that, I went, "Okay, I'm in." <laughs> I keep saying you keep pronouncing Twin Peaks really weirdly at that. It just doesn't sound right when you say it. You know, <laughs> greatest television show of all time. Anyway, but yeah, no, it, it looks great. And what's really cool to see about it with it being a spinoff series, it's the original creators working on it. You know, Rodney Barnes is writing, Jason and Sean Alexander is doing the the art on it. You've got Lou NCT on colors, who of course is the colorist in Philadelphia. So. It's nice to see an expansion of the universe being handled by the original creators rather than it just being like, you know, bringing a different voice in perhaps. So, yeah, that looks really cool. I mean, I, I fully expect to learn more about it in uh, the next day or two when our, our delivery arrives. The The previews books are due this week. That'll be the August previews books. So that'll be for titles due out in October. So I'm sure there'll be more information on it there. And of course, we'll be there to guide you through it with a, with a previews podcast as we always like to do every month. Although I do say the delivery, it's uh, delayed this week. Of course it is. Uh, normally it would come on a Monday, but again, Diamonds UK and Diamond US have had a little bit of a delay between the two of them. So it only got shipped this morning, and uh, so I hopefully will receive it on the Tuesday. And then we can just bang it out. It'll be fine. But tons of great stuff to look forward to this week, which of course we'll get on to later as well. So... Also this week there were the uh, Eisner Awards. They were all handled online. Of course, no sort of in-person ceremony, which is which is always a shame. But you know, we had a look at some of the nominations a few weeks ago. We sort of threw out our 
maybe our personal picks more than what who we thought would win and i'm delighted to say we got absolutely none of them right <laughs> <laughs> oh there were some big surprises here to say the least yeah i mean there was there were some great um there were some great things i mean uh department of truth was the most nominated title um you know it had four nominations best continuing series best new series best writer best letter and uh gene lun yang was the most nominated individual um on the whole thing and he's doing some fantastic stuff on shang chi at the minute but other than that i mean uh, uh, those are good to see but other than that yeah we were <laughs> we were fairly far left of the mark well i suppose the the big one for uh, Department of Truth is James Tinian did win Best uh, Writer, I believe, which is probably unsurprising. I mean, we we certainly talk about him all the time. You know, his his output is incredible. The the very the you know how variety how much variety there is to his work. You know, he can do the big two stuff. He can do the you know the horror books. He can do the all ages title. He can do a little bit. He can do the you know conspiracy title. So uh, I think that was the only one we probably got right, but certainly the one that surprised me the most, and this is not a slight on the title because I actually do read what did win, which was Black Widow, but it was the um, the award for best new series. And to give you an idea of some of the titles in there, you had Crossover, you had Department of Truth, the aforementioned Philadelphia, we only find them when they're dead. And don't get me wrong, Black Widow is a very good title, but I was just very surprised to see it win. Maybe, maybe I'm just so used to the Eisners rewarding indie companies ahead of, you know, the big two, so to speak. You know, they almost want to be seen as a little more edgy and actually rewarding uh, the uh, rewarding indie stuff as opposed to the big two. Mm, I mean, that is interesting that every other, you know, every other nomination was either an image title or a boom title, so indie in, in a way, um, but... But the but yeah, interesting, interesting nonetheless. It's uh, it's a the Black Widow is a book that uh, I can comment on. I, I haven't read it. I've got it sitting to read, and haven't quite got around to it. Um, but I'll get there. I'll get there. Well, on the plus side, there was one we definitely got right, and uh, I'm delighted to say that best graphic album was Pulp by Mr. Ed Brubaker and Mr. Sean Phillips. So we got that one right at least, you know, uh, at least when we, you know, have been recommending and talking about certain titles so much, you know, it was, you know, I think we chatted about it. It was our favorite original graphic of last year. So maybe Mm. we do have our finger in the pulse more than we actually think. So (laughs) that's not quite so bad. Uh, Another title that got announced this week, and again, I'm sure we'll see more information on the previews book, one that's probably going to interest you, I would imagine. This is the new Luke Cage series. This is going to be a three-issue miniseries called Luke Cage City on Fire, and it's a very interesting creative team. Uh, It's someone who was the biographer of Martin Luther King, uh, Ho Chi Anderson, writer-artist, and is going to be writing this, and then there's actually going to be a few different artists on here, and it's going to go... And Pit Cage against Kingpin, so that sounds good to me. It's been a while since we've had Luke Cage in a in a solo title. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it, it, it has been. He's appeared in he appeared in the recent uh, Larry Hammer uh, Iron Fist series, which was which was great. But uh, yeah, this sounds great. Um, a shadowy rogue group named the Regulators are terrorizing ordinary citizens in New York. Whenever I hear that name, the Regulators, I always think of Young Guns. And Luke Cage is called the action uh, when a black man in his community is murdered by a crooked police officer. Interesting. Sounds quite uh, up to date. Um, Cage quickly crosses paths with Daredevil, who's determined to bring down the regulators no matter the cost. But Mayor Fisk is equally determined to use them to tighten his grip on the city. Unrest in the streets, and it's up to Cage to keep the city from going up in flames. 
Uh, yeah, that sounds that sounds really interesting. Expect to see that on the previews board when it gets updated this week. I would say so. Yeah, they'll, they'll, there's no doubt be more announcements on top of that. And again, we'll, we'll jump into that much more detail when we hit the uh, the previews pod. Moving on to the sort of TV movie side of things, uh, just a quick shout out that Suicide Squad's going to be hitting this weekend. Uh, it's uh, scheduled for release on the 30th of July. Both Keith and I have done what I like to call the adult thing and avoided pretty much all the trailers. <laughs> you know, unless it's before a movie, you can't get away from that, which is fine. But you know, we yeah. certainly don't search out YouTube. You know, trailer number two or you know, Japanese trailer with five extra seconds of footage, etc. I think we know we're going to be there. You know, it's it's James Gunn directing. It looks a lot of fun. I, I'm definitely up for this. Yeah, for sure. I, I did uh, see another trailer, I think. Uh, I think it was a different trailer um, before Black Widow. Uh, those sorts of trailers are unavoidable and always nice to see in the cinema. Um, obviously, we're all hoping for the uh, the taste of the last Suicide Squad movie to be wiped from our palettes um by this um, you mean that it's... that oscar-winning movie is that what you're talking about <laughs> yeah, oscar-winning <laughs> piece of bollocks um but, uh, but um yeah i mean this looks like a very different very different show like a very different tone uh much more and and yeah i mean i think you can james gunn's a, a safe pair of hands you know for for something like this which is going to be very much in the comedy action side I think so. Uh, so yeah, looks looks interesting and looks much more in keeping with, for example, maybe the more recent Side Squad representations on the uh, in the comics. Yeah, very much so. I think they're taking a lot from John Ostrander for this as well, and it looks very much like Dirty Dozen, but in the DC universe, which is what yeah. you know Suicide Squad should be. So yeah, very much looking forward to that. But of course, there was something else that launched last week that I know you were particularly excited for. I have oh, not watched any of it. Well, None of it None so of it. far. Uh, that will change. That will change. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to, uh, to 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 spoil anything for you. But yeah, Masters of the Universe Revelations uh, launched uh, on was it Friday morning? Uh, five episodes. The first the first half of the series. Uh, showrunner was Kevin Smith and uh, a bevy of, of writers in the five episodes, including Mark Bernardin, who very often joins Kevin Smith in the on the Fat Man Beyond pad podcast and as a, has, has written for Marvel previously and some of the um, the Peter Parker, the amazing Shutterbug uh, for the Heroes Reborn stuff and also a, an American Kaiju uh, series in one of the King and Black um, mm-hmm. ensembles. Uh, and they, well, Tim Sheridan was another writer uh, of Teen Titans Academy and, uh, and a variety of other books that we're reading at the minute. Thoroughly enjoyed the first five episodes. Uh, it's I'm I am the target market uh, for that. I think that there's there's a dual target market. There are those people who were into Masters of the Universe first time around, and you know in the early 1980s. And I mean that show was effectively a giant toy commercial. <laughs> and it worked. Uh, I'm guessing it, it worked perfectly. <laughs> and the other, I guess, the other target market is people of my age who have kids and want to introduce them to Masters of the Universe. And this does this does a fantastic job. It tells the Masters of the Universe episodes in the original were all standalone episodes, really. Mm-hmm. You know, and they, they they were self-contained, you know, twenty-five minute episodes. This tells a continuing story, and it expands upon what was originally set down, you know, as the mythos of the the Masters of the Universe. Uh, I was just so gleeful seeing so many of those characters again for the first. 
again on for the first time, uh, you know, when they're they're represented uh, forms, uh, you know, Tila and Man at Arms and Randor and Merlina and Adam and He-Man and Cringer and Battle Cat and Orko and, you know, even some of the villains, you know, Skeletor, who was, uh, you know, voiced by our very own Mark Hamill. Uh, you know, uh, which is, was great, uh, and, and a lot of those, you know, and the, the cast was phenomenal. But yeah, the, the storytelling is great. But as is the way with the internet, uh, and, and and a lot of it, uh, it has been largely reviewed very well by critics. Uh, but uh, a lot of the internet have sort of turned against it, uh, which I find hilarious. <laughs> Uh, unfortunately the negativity of anything will always sort of resonate louder than the positivity for anything it's as simple as that if you say something's really good people sort of go oh right that's good to hear but if you say something's really bad they're like oh tell me why it's bad it's it's a very negative way of thinking in general uh luckily enough we are both grown men who are able to make our own opinions and don't really listen to internet warriors exactly exactly i mean it's it's there's something slightly more toxic behind the negative, you know, the review bombing, I think, of, of Masters of the Universe. Uh, you know, and I, I think it's uh, there's a lot of toxic masculinity behind it. Mm-hmm. You know, the the thrust of the... the they very much, and it's fantastic, uh, what, what, what Kevin Smith has done with the series is fantastic. He turns it on its head in its first episode uh, and does a thing that you, you're not expecting uh, and, and carry, carries it through, carries mm-hmm. it through brilliantly. Um, while still, I thought being very respectful of, you know, what had gone before, uh, and, and so, so many ways. Um, but I can see, you know, there, there are a lot of folk who, a lot of, a lot of, uh, agenda driven people who are not happy with, uh, female led, uh, shows or female led anything. Mm-hmm that I think are very much coming out against this. Uh, and I think that's where it's coming from. Uh, and you know what? Stuff them, grow up. I mean, from <laughs> what I understand, there's a very easy way to to differentiate this. Back when it was the, the He-Man cartoon of the 80s, it was called He-Man and the Masters of the Universe. This is just called Masters of the Universe. There's a very, very, you know, deliberate, you know, difference there. You know, it doesn't just want to yeah, focus on He-Man. It wants to focus on... A variety of, of cast members so yeah, and this does this does much more i mean every episode of the original series was you know he-man fight skeletor you know or something skeletor plans or someone plans or something happens and you know he-man and eventually he raises his magic sword and says the the words of power and becomes he-man and you know eventually everything's solved and then we have a lesson at the end of it uh, <laughs> but this is much more nuanced much more nuanced uh, and uh, I, I think what they've done is is phenomenal. To to think that if anybody thought that Kevin Smith was going to come out and go, okay, I'll just do that for ten episodes, they yeah should have really thought a wee bit harder about it. <laughs> but I think it's it is absolutely phenomenal. Highly recommend it to to any one of my generation who was a, a He Man fan uh, first time round and is a wee bit higher thinking than your average dude, bro. <laughs> average dude bro that should be on a t-shirt <laughs> so yeah no i'm looking forward to it i mean kevin smith put a tweet out which is actually really funny where he said you know i i just got the most uh important blessing of all regarding the series and it was because uh the the twitter handle slash profile grumpy skeletor said it was fantastic so 
if you can please grumpy <laughs> skeletor you're doing well you know and then the other thing you know they had alan openheimer on there alan openheimer was the man who voiced skeletor the first time around uh, and they included him as the voice of Mossman. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mossman, who is in effect a uh, the swamp thing of the the, the masters of the universe, uh, and he was included in that. Uh, so that was like a lovely wee nod back to the to the original series. But yeah, fantastic stuff. Couldn't recommend it highly and more highly. And uh, I'm really looking forward to part two, the next five episodes, because <laughs> the mid-season cliffhanger was something else again. <laughs> <laughs> But um, yeah, let me know whenever you've watched that. It is, it is, it is brilliant. I certainly will. Hopefully, get into it sometime this week. I would say so. If you want to hear more of Keith's uh, opinions on Masters of the Universe, you know, more spoiler filled because he's being nice here and not spoiling for me. You can pop down to the store. He will be running it this weekend. He is uh, very graciously agreed to look after the stories. Be there sort of late Friday evening, all of Saturday, and all of Monday. As Vicky and I will be heading over to England for a few days to see the family for the first time in, in a long time to say the least so once again many thanks to you sir for uh looking after the place but you know please be gentle with them you know <laughs> i'll be looking forward to it i have to say it'll be it's funny taking a day off work to go and spend the day working but uh <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah, i am looking forward to it and uh, i'm sure some of the some of the the, the regulars i nearly said regulators uh, the regulars will be will be tight. You're just yeah. young guns in the mind. Oh, absolutely! I think I watched it a couple of weeks ago. So, <laughs> um, but uh, they'll be down to give me a, a wee bit of a hand and advice, and I know you'll be you'll be uh, leaving me in in good hands. You'll not be leaving me high and dry by any means. Oh, definitely not. I mean, because of course we all we had to reorganize the story again this week. You know, there's an increased manga section. There's a brand new podcast and YouTube recommendation section. So a lot of titles that we we talk about recommend are in there as well. So yeah, there's there's plenty there. But yeah, d- just be gentle with them. He might he'll look after you. He'll look after you. So uh, yeah, so that'll be over this weekend, and then just obviously a slight knock on effect of that means. Uh, the pod next week will probably be maybe a day later just with us not getting back to the Monday evening so uh, just uh, keep an eye out for that we'll probably still get it out in the Tuesday hopefully and uh, maybe we previews pod along the way as well so and just a wee uh, just a wee uh, yeah just a wee last a last thanks to uh, Stephen for popping on with us uh, last week to, to add an extra voice and uh, we'll be looking forward to uh, to having him on again once he gets his uh, audio uh, issues sorted out uh, you know there was a few wee Few wee, few wee audio issues, and uh, and once we get those sorted out, in fact, once we're back in the same room again, yeah, much uh, easier. We'll be, we'll be looking forward to to having them on again. We've uh, we spent a fair wee bit of time trying to get our audio fairly fairly crisp, and then you know, with, with whenever someone comes on, whenever they're they're distant, sometimes can can be a wee bit uh, tricky. But yeah, it was really good fun, and uh, we'll look forward to to having himself and a few other uh, more local guest stars on again in future. Yeah, we have a few of those lined up for uh, book clubs and different things and so forth. So, again, it's just always good to sort of expand the community of, you know, who comes to the store and if you to hear different voices, different opinions, different takes on these things as well, rather than just listening to our boring old voices all the time. But <laughs> we'll do our best to keep you entertained regardless. So, yeah, we're just... Comics! Comics, 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 and they are 14th of July release comics. So, again, this uh, section of the pod will become very spoiler-filled. These are titles from a couple of weeks ago. Again, we always like to give you guys plenty of opportunity to pick up the pools get uh, caught up get reading and so forth but as ever the timestamps will be below in the description so you can flick past anything that you're worried about having spoiled for you so 
again, this was a slightly quieter week for us. Uh, there was some delivery issues. There was next to no indie titles. In fact, I think we have one indie title to discuss, although it is a good one. And therefore, the, the titles were a little uh, less forced. The pools were a little less forced this week. But Keith's beating me again. I'm not liking this. Uh, even on a quieter week. Normality is resumed. I'm not liking it. So, uh, yeah, 15 titles in total on my pool list this week, which was very heavily dominated by DC, which was nine DC titles. I then had four Marvel titles. I actually had two indie. There was another little indie title I read as well. Uh, and what about yourself, Keith? What were your tools? Uh, three ahead of you with uh, with eighteen titles in my pool this week, and ten DC to your nine DC. Action Comics. That's that's the the outlier here. All right, okay, there we go. I did look it up when I saw it on our <laughs> notes. I thought, what does he beat me on in DC? I'm just not a big Superman guy. Yeah, yeah, that was a good book. It was a good book. Um, seven for Marvel and one for Indy, and I also picked up uh, an Indy uh, omnibus. A hard copy, the beautiful hard copy collection of uh, Middle West, um, which was was just phenomenal. Scotty Young, Jorge Corona. Um, it was the full the full run of it with a lot of lovely back matter, beautifully presented for uh, for Bruna's birthday, and she loved it. Uh, loved it so much that she took it with her down to Dublin to show uh, <laughs> various people. Look at the <laughs> disappointment in your face. You were like, I could have read that this week. <laughs> Plenty to keep you entertained in the meantime, I'm sure. But but yeah, as ever, we'll kick things off with the old honourable mentions. Break it down by DC, Marvel, discuss that one in the book, and then move on to some picks of the week. So DC-wise, it was, uh, as I say, a strong week. It was quite a heavily led bat week, because of course it was. But there was also some other great stuff. I mean, the the first title we have as an honourable mention was, was very close for you for pick of the week material, I believe. Big style, big style. It's... Uh... Rorschach number 10 by Tom King, uh, Jorge Fornes, and Dave Stewart on Colours. Issue 10 of a 12-issue series. And uh, this, I mean, I, I know this has come up in our honourable mentions, you know, the past week, you know, the past number of weeks. It was a slow burner to start, but boy, whenever it started, it gave value to the to what had come before and really just kicked up a gear. And this is... We're now, you know, two thirds of the way through the series. You know, those first two thirds of the series showed us the mystery box, and we're now like two or three issues into watching that box being slowly and agonizingly opened um, as our yet unnamed investigator uh, starts to uncover the final members of the conspiracy that led to uh, Rorschach. That's Will Myerson, who uh, you know is is kind of a an analog maybe for uh, for some old timey um, more old school uh, comic writers and uh, and the kid uh, Laura you know the, the conspiracy that had them attempting to assassinate the presidential candidate running against the incumbent president Robert Redford. Yeah, I mean this was a fantastic issue. It's very very high up on my list this week as well. It it is quite a word heavy issue. Uh, you know, lots of narration, lots of dialogue, but. But it never feels like we're drowning in information because it's it's presented to you in such a way that you want to know where it's going with every single panel. So, I mean, we are starting to get answers here, but, you know, do we necessarily believe and trust them given that there's still a couple issues to go? I mean, I I think there has to be a sting in the tail of some kind here, definitely. But but you do also worry when you, when you are reading a comic book, you know, if something is very text heavy, it may detract from the visuals. You know, obviously, comic is a visual medium. You don't want to just be reading text boxes everywhere, but... I just cannot get enough of Jorge Fornes' art. It is beautiful. 
Mm, I mean, you saw that problem a wee bit in the last issue of Department of Truth, but when when every um, text box and, and uh, word balloon was, was golden, you didn't mind too much, and that's the case here. Um, I thought that the art and the the words very much complemented and added to each other. But for me now, it's getting hard to say which of Tom King's DC books is the most effective. For me right now, you know, I think it's this. And I think Supergirl is coming up very close behind after two issues. Jorge Fornes and Dave Stewart's art and colors are incomparable. There's... It- I'm very, very glad you mentioned uh, Dave Stewart there, obviously, being the colours. You know, we obviously focus so much on writers and, and the main artists on a title, but I think it's definitely important to throw a mention out for the colours in general in this series. You've seen it throughout the whole series so far, you know. Tom Keeney, he's, he's the kind of writer, he doesn't spoon-feed you answers. He doesn't lay everything out for you. He doesn't have, you know, text boxes there saying two days ago, five days ago, whatever, you know, that kind of thing. But the answers are always there if you pay attention. And and sometimes the color changes between panels will actually give away time periods. Now, you do have to pay attention. And therefore, I think Dave Stewart's contributions in this book, they're as equally as important as Keane's writing and Jorge Fornes' art. And there's something else as well. I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, our investigator, I don't know if it's deliberate or not deliberate, but in, in both color of color of uh, dress and style of dress and also in haircut bears a striking resemblance to a young Columbo. I think you might be onto something there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, but yeah, I mean, this, this particular issue is really interesting because we see, we see a man with a proud career uh, in, in, uh, in security and, and uh, private investigation and a military career being slowly radicalized and there's a really subtle nod, I think, to one of Tom King's other works, Sheriff of Babylon. I'm sure you saw the panel that I'm, I'm, I'm talking about with the, the cross swords in, in Baghdad. Yeah. Um, and a woman who worked for this man and is loyal to him realized that through him she's been pulled into something really, you know, possibly terrible and life-changing. Um, and I don't know, okay, there's... I can't expect this to be one of the most controversial issues of the run because obviously we're, we're dealing with, as Watchmen always has, and let's be clear that this is linked to Watchmen, uh, you know, the, the comic that, that came before. The, you know, the alternate, alternate history side of thing, and it, it tells you that there's a very major American event that never happened. Um, and also, you know, and that, that in itself, I think, could be could be fairly controversial and also you know that last act reveal that indicates who the true villain of the story may be yeah i mean i'm i'm a sucker for alternate history it's you know watchman was always one of the best at, at doing that it, like even just to step outside the comic of watchman and look at the movie the, the opening credit sequence that shows you that alternate history i'm just a sucker for that kind of stuff you know in watchman you had america win in vietnam obviously with dr manhattan's help you had nixon's den and par even to the point where we had three terms as well. So that's one of the reasons this sits so well next to Watchmen itself, I, I think, as well. Thematically, it just fits together really, really well. Yeah, and it's, as I say, it's really, it's really heating up to boiling point for the last two issues. And, you know, the question becomes, how far will the people who are in power, and power, make no mistake, always drive to preserve the status quo, how far will those people go to prevent the truth from coming out? Well, we're going to find out with the last couple of issues. You know, we've said it before about Rorschach, but it was a little bit slow in getting going. We weren't sure the links to the character, the links to Watchmen and so forth. But 
now it's going to full speed to be honest i just wish it wasn't over in two issues i <laughs> i would happily take more of this yeah 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 absolutely but there's there's a part of it as well that is going well it's, it's a self-contained story you know and uh, it's going to make a it's going to make a beautiful hardback. It's going to make a beautiful, complete complete story as well. And yes, DC, I would like an absolute edition, please. <laughs> so that is Rorschach number 10 of 12 as we rattle towards the end of that. So another one that dropped this week that was very high up on my list, I have to say, is Batman the Detective number 4. So this is a six-issue miniseries. So we're again, we're two-thirds of the way through this one now. Uh, you have this as Tom Taylor on writing duties, Andy Kubert on art, and Brad Anderson on colours. I mean, a fallible Batman who can make mistakes or miss a detail, say it ain't so. <laughs> you know, this uh, this series has been fantastic from the get-go, you know. Tom Taylor, is able to explore an older Dark Knight who maybe misses the odd thing. He maybe misses a step every so often. And I absolutely love Andy Kubert's just pleasantly chunky and violent art, you know, sort of leading the way as well. I, I'm loving this so far, and I actually think this may have been the best issue yet. Yeah, I mean, you say an older, and that's not to say that, you know, there's there's not an advantage to being older as well, because he definitely has, has leavened a little bit and uh, and understands people a wee bit more, uh, even if he does miss the odd the odd detail or finds it less important. Um, I mean, I thought, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think this may, issue four may have been the best issue um, of the of the series so far. It's a six issue mini, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I thought that in some ways this was the polar opposite of how Chip Zdarsky was treating Batman in the third issue of Justice League Ride, which last ride, which you know was also released this week, and which sometimes seemed like he was parodying Batman. You know, there was that that whole thing where Batman can fall asleep in seventy seconds and only needs two hours sleep or some such. You know that that was that uber macho infallible Batman, and you know. I think, yeah, sometimes that's a wee bit, that can be a wee bit much. Uh, and in this, and I think the strongest story is stronger for it. You know, I think, you know, you really felt concern for Bruce's well-being and it very much added to the to the stakes here because normally you don't, you know, the, you, you never feel that Batman's at risk. It's the people around him that are at risk. You know, he's always going to have some golden ticket out of there or something that he's pre-planned or you know some deus deus ex machina that is he's going to play another card you know but in, in this i don't i don't think that was the case and, and i say you really you really did feel worried about him and you know but that, that said then you know bruce wayne being handcuffed to the table and, and using sheer brute strength to snap the handcuff chain was just a wee bit too far for me well, based on Andy Kubert's ridiculously hulking version <laughs> of Batman, you can believe it. I think. Yeah, I mean, and Andy Kubert's art, as you said, is just phenomenal. It's it's. Yeah, whenever Bruce Wayne was was escaping from the, and he he knocked out one of the guards or whatever, and taking his costume and was trying to hold it, hold the uniform around his giant body, it was it was very very cool. Yeah, no, the art's fantastic, and I mean, this we say it's probably the best issue so far it's quintessentially a very straightforward issue i mean this has been a very action-packed series but this felt like the issue where it stopped to take a breath and, and explore some things and you know the bulk of this issue was just bruce wayne being questioned by two interpol agents over uh, an attack on on ducard yeah i mean there was compared to the other issues there was a bit of a lack of action but a lot of narrative but i mean we're entering the back half of this six issue mini and batman is now 
you know, he, he now understands the lay of the land a wee bit more. And I, I feel like he's sort of, certainly by the end of this issue, he's going on the offensive. Yeah, I mean, you, you look at Tom Taylor's writing, he always has a very clear plan with everything that he's doing. He's brilliant at these sort of shorter series. You looked at the Cease, you looked at even Friendly Neighbourhood, that kind of thing. And what's really interesting with, with his structure is that he's actually able to humanise Bruce Wayne quite a lot. You know, this this is a Batman who actually cares about people and, you know, all these deaths that are happening, he feels responsible for because these were lives he saved and therefore he made them a target by saving them. He almost just gave them borrowed time because these people have, have stepped in. He feels the weight of every one of those deaths. And this shows a vulnerability. We don't always see when other writers, you know, tackle the character. You know, other character or other writers are they'll always focus more on the mission and have a very detached Batman. Even though he has probably one of the biggest sidekick family in comics, they always still write him as very detached and, you know, they're soldiers and they're well-trained and they're this and they're that. But... You know, I really love that Tom Taylor's exploring the humanity of the character. Well, there's no better writer to do it. I mean, Tom Taylor has managed to, you know, further humanize the most human character in comics, which is Spider-Man, um, you know, and, and Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man. Uh, likewise, and Nightwing. I mean, that's, that's really where he excels. And, you know, there was a splash page um, just after Bruce succumbs to the the drugs that I thought was very poignant, you know, he's, uh, he, he, he thinks about, you know, the people that he thought about whenever, you know, the, the people, and, and as his life flashes before his eyes yeah. in a way, uh, you know, friends, and we see Superman, people he's loved, we see Talia and Selena, uh, people he's lost uh, along the way, Jason, people he's pushed away, Descartes and the dead, Alfred. Uh, I thought that was really, I thought that was a really poignant and, and well-presented artistically page. Yeah, it's it's the the creative team. I mean, this is what helps set it apart from many other titles out there. You know, it's it's not just. I mean, the European setting does give it a different flavor as well. It, you know, the, yeah. there's always nods to backgrounds and and to you know things that are synonymous with certain cities and landmarks and stuff like that. But I just think what sets it apart from a lot of the other Batman titles is just this more nuanced look and this more vulnerable sort of Bruce. And as you say, that splash page, it's. He's not quite near death, but you know it's it's interesting to sort of see what what would Batman think about at the end, you know. And I thought that was, yeah, that's a, a really good point. So yeah, four issues in trade probably won't be far behind. I wouldn't be surprised if the trade's actually solicited in the uh, the next previews book that we'll we'll get this week. So that is Batman the Detective number four. And speaking of Batman, we have Batman Urban Legends number five. But this isn't you know a title that we're most excited about because of Batman, is it, Keith? Definitely not. I mean, my excitement came from the the Rosenberg uh, vignette, uh, the story, the last the last part of the long con, and the Wildcats are back. Images, Wildcats uh, team are 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 returned full force. Uh, really, really pleased about that. Yeah, I mean, I've never, I've never been the biggest, not necessarily the biggest Wildcats fan. It's just it's not a, a title or a or a team I have a lot of exposure to. But even I have to admit that entrance was absolutely kick ass. I mean, the Wildcats, the Wildcats were created by Jim Lee and Brandon Chow, I think, uh, and they were Wildcats. It's Wild C A T uh, S, which stood for Covert Action Team. And they were a group of superheroes that were connected to an ongoing intergalactic war. Um, and then there were later incarnations of the Wildcats that incorporated in the Halo Corporation, this founder Jack Marlowe, 
and the Wildcats' desire to protect the word being complicated by team drama and corporate politics and all of that sort of stuff. The team were last seen, I think, uh, 2011, uh, before, I guess, that Wildstorm universe was destroyed, and then they were incorporated in the New 52, uh, and then there was uh, sort of an attempted reboot, Warren Ellis reboot and such, uh, more recently. But they haven't been seen as a team since uh, since 2011, and to me, that reveal of the Wildcats as a fully functioning team is absolutely honouring the promise that DC made with Infinite Frontiers that all past stories are relevant and interconnected through the through the multiverse. So, I mean, that was to me that's that's delivering on on that. And I mean that the, the long con has been a great story. Matthew Rosenberg, uh, as I say, at the helm of it, and uh, was really about Cole Cash Grifter. And uh, he's working with Lucius Fox, you know, Lucius, who now is in charge of Wayne Enterprises and uh, hired hired Grifter as the as a bodyguard and so forth. Um, so Grifter has managed to manipulate the likes of Lucius, the Wayne Enterprises security, uh, Leviathan in a skilled and masterful way that has rarely been seen. And that's, as the story wraps up here, it becomes evident that Cole has outsmarted Batman as well, uh, proving that he, I'd say he's up there with Constantine as DC's most cunning and effective manipulator and liar. Um, definitely, I mean, this was this was the finale. The story was called The Long Con, so we really should have known, but this was the finale of that storyline, and I certainly hope that Rosenberg is gearing up for some dedicated Wildcats action in the near future. Well, that's it. I mean, the, the story ends with, you know, the subtitle, The Wildcats Will Return, so mm-hmm. you, you can but hope. I mean, I do have to ask, what was your opinion on uh, Cole Cash saying... I swear to God, if I have to fight some goth gymnast, as he's talking about Nightwing. <laughs> that just, uh, I think that, that those two paired were, were, were hilarious, you know. Maybe that's what um, we need, just a team-up title of those two. Yeah, possibly. I mean, in some ways, they're, in some ways they're two sides of a, of a coin, you know. Um, I think Grifter is more in common with, uh, with, with Dick Grayson than he would certainly with Bruce Wayne. But, uh, but uh, yeah, I, just, I, that, I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I mean, that story was obviously very, very strong. I mean, for me, the the Jason Todd Batman story by Chip Zdarsky and Eddie Barrows is is always worth the admittedly high cover price. You know, this is an $8 book every issue. But I think that story alone is justified to a degree because it's been this wonderful exploration with the one, you know, Batman's son, if you will, who is so rough around the edges, you know. Red Hood's such an interesting character because he, he never feels hesitation to take that extra step to pull off a deadly move to kill someone if he thinks it's for the greater good. And it doesn't make him a bad person. You know, it, it's, it actually demonstrates he has huge he has a huge heart and he's actually willing to take the guilt of taking a life on his shoulders. You know, there's uh, I've loved the exploration of the character here. But, and, and this issue is really, really good because there's great detective skills on show here. And, you know, he must go back to basics, you know, go back to what Batman taught him. And, you know, if he if he wants to save him, you know, he refers to him as his father once or twice as well. You know, he shows his methodical side here, which I really like because, and again, Zdarsky's another writer, similar to Tom Taylor, who's very good at this. You know, he, he shows that there's much more to the character than just, you know, being an all-guns-blazing hothead you know, who acts first and thinks later. I mean, so many writers just do that. It's just like they make him Batman, but he's willing to kill, and that's it. There's no differentiation, whereas here they actually explored a lot more. And 
you know, there's there's just one issue to go of it. I know Urban Legends runs up to six with these stories. We've we've previewed issue seven. It's going to go to a lot of Batman of the Future issues and beyond and stuff like that. But with just one issue to go, I'm I'm left wondering if Jason's going to be welcomed fully back into the Bat family fold, or will he remain an outsider at this point? Um, maybe you should look in the direction of uh, the Future State Gotham book by Joshua Williamson to answer that question. Well, that's a possible future, not a guaranteed one. Yeah. <laughs> but it is yeah, a well. it is a fair point. But yeah, you also, I mean, when it comes to Future State Gotham as well, what's going to be interesting with that is, you know, not, not to go on a little bit of a, a segue, but will Batman have asked Jason to infiltrate the Magistrate? You know, mm. that's that's where I'm coming from, you know, so... But uh, I also enjoyed the, the Tim Drake story I thought was very strong as well, you know, especially given Tim Drake as a character, I would rank very lowly on the Robin Ominer, and that is copyrighted by me this year, by the way. <laughs> I would say you're, you're, uh, you're pushing a faulty meter there, but sure, go ahead. <laughs> well, it's just, it's an interesting setup, what they've got him here, because you're, you're maybe finding Tim Drake at that crossroads, you know, that Dick Grayson found himself at, you know, years earlier. He knows he needs to move on from just being a sidekick, from just being Robin, but he's he's a bit unsure what the next step to take is. So I would imagine this story's right up your alley as well. Yeah, really enjoying it. Um, I have a, a much higher opinion of Tim Drake than your good self, but I mean that identity struggle is legendary. Um, really enjoying it. The you know the 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 search for his friend uh, Bernard, and I mean it was a wee bit weird to see you know a. Uh, I mean, Tim is still an older teenage boy, I think, to be strapped to that chair and having the shit beaten out of him by people who uh, really enjoy pseudomasochism. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a wee bit uh, un- uncomfortable to watch. But, uh, yeah, I'm really enjoying exploring Tim's character and exploring his struggle for, for identity and what he what he feels he should be doing or could be doing. Um, but, yeah, my overall with Batman Urban Legends, I'm really in love with that, that, that exploration of different parts of Gotham and different members of the Bat family and that extended universe that we don't get to see very often in some of the more focused Bat titles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so, I'll yeah. I'll definitely be sticking with it, but I'll just be really curious to see. The reason I've enjoyed it so much is because the creative teams have been really strong the whole way through it, you know, whether it's Chip or it's Matt Rosenberg or it's Eddie Barrows or, you know, whatever, it's it's been strong teams. So I think from issue seven onwards, we're going to see some different creative teams as well as obviously different uh, stories. So I'll, I'll be keeping an eye on it. But I'm a Batman guy. Who am I even trying to kid that I won't continue with it? So, but <laughs> I should say that uh, it was Ryan Benjamin on art on the uh, on the Matthew Rosenberg Wildcat story. And maybe he will be joining them in the Wildcats future as well. So we'll we'll keep an eye for that. But yeah, that's pretty much the, the DC Honorable Mentions side of things. So we will jump on to some Marvel. So we're going to kick things off with a, a one shot that landed this week. This came from the team of Benjamin Percy uh, on writing duties, Dave Wachter on art, and Chris Sotomayor on colors. And this was Elaine's Aftermath. Yeah, I mean, this was... This was great. Uh, Marvel have been doing some fantastic stuff with the Alien license since they acquired it. Better, I would say, than many of us expected. Um, but it's uh, it's under the watchful eye of uh, Philip Kennedy Johnson, so uh, no surprises there. This is no exception and, and also no surprise, given that Benjamin Percy is on writing duties. Um, but the, the, the paradigm of the whole thing is slightly different from the main Alien series as... This is a 35th uh, year anniversary celebration of the Aliens movie. 
and picks up as kind of a sequel to that moving, returning to Hadley's Hope, uh, which was the, uh, the 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 setting of the the Aliens movie, uh, and returning to it roughly 35 year, years after the events of that movie, and following the nephew of uh, Vasquez. Yeah, see, this is where I love it when they link these things together. You know, they use legacy characters to connect because it, as an as a fan and as an audience member from Aliens, it gives you an instant connection to that character because you remember how kick-ass that character was in the movie. So mm-hmm. that's it's, it's a very simple thing to do, but it, rather than just having a brand new character there, having someone who's linked to them just instantly pulls you straight into the story. And, and I 100% agree. You know, it's, I, I think we all had slight reservations about, you know, Marvel with aliens, not so much on the Marvel side of things, but just on the Disney side of things. And uh, they, they've knocked it out of the park so far with all of the aliens content. Yeah, and uh, Dave uh, Wachter's art is pretty awesome really suitable and and eerie with fantastic use of of lighting effects and and color in this particular issue yeah especially that splash page that really stood out to me the you know the the first viewing of hadley's hope this sort of snow encrusted nightmare that it's that it's become you know it's it's the complete opposite to how threatening hadley's hope was in the movie because instead of just pure darkness and sort of you know that sort of technical layout almost i suppose now you've sort of got snow and light and color but you're sort of still like it's just as threatening so and of course you know this being an aliens title there's plenty of gore and mayhem to go around art wise yeah i mean it's everything you could want in an alien story the 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 unfeeling corporate manipulators i mean don't you just hate wayland yutani uh you know (laughs) and the number of people that you the number of analogs in the real world uh, there's the dread and unease of what could be there in the shadows and plenty of, of alien mayhem too. And there's a really interesting, there's some really interesting character work and an angle in the story that we haven't really seen in an alien story before. Yeah, so if you, if you haven't got into the Marvel alien stuff, this is a really good sort of pickup point. It, it does work as a, as a one-shot, but it's also linking to what they're setting up. You know, so far it's, you know, on that last page as well, it's even saying, you know, you got to love a link back to... Uh, back to hudson from aliens it's not game over yet uh <laughs> check out and then it's alien 5 as well so yeah i like that it's linking to the main sort of universe that marvel are building yeah i really enjoyed the the, the issue in general really enjoying the alien comics from marvel uh, overall and i'll be interested to see you know if and when this story is reflected in the ongoing story, series that that ongoing series takes place some 40 years later again and uh I mean, I really enjoyed the, the the unique effect of the alien in this in this particular yeah, story. Yeah, very different. We haven't seen before. Yeah, very different. I mean, the, it doesn't mess around with the design per se because the design is so iconic, but it's able to do it in a different way where you've seen something you haven't seen before. So, mm. uh, yeah, I think that's pretty. I mean, it's a shame they sort of give away give it away in the cover. You yes, know? <laughs> yes, it is. But what can you do? Sure. But what can you do? Indeed, you know, never judge a book bad's cover unless it's a comic book. So. That is Aliens Aftermath. So next up, we're going to check in on the X-Universe. Uh, tell us about Way of X number four. Yeah, Way of X uh, number four. We've got uh, Cy Spurrier uh, and Bob Quinn on this. And I think this was maybe the best issue of the series so far. Um, the series has sort of resolved itself as a as a Nightcrawler and Legion book. And... Uh, Cy Spurrier and Bob Quinn are working perfectly in concert here. I think there's only one other issue, one additional issue of the series and an onslaught-related one-shot left for this, but it's been great 
very different, you know, as an X series, and certainly the most philosophical addition to the X mythos. Uh, and this issue sort of makes me wish it was more than just limited. But that said, I mean, Sysbury has noted that we should see this as the end of season one and not the end of his exploration of mutant ethos uh, on the island of Krakoa. And here we're dealing with moral quandaries relating to the resurrection protocols and with forgiveness, redemption and possibly irredeemability relating to former foes um, who are now fellow Krakoans. Um as well as sort of pulling back the curtain a little on the seemingly perfectly executed terraforming of of Mars, which we saw in Planet Size X-Men, Mars or, or Araco, as we're now calling it. Um, Spurrier really deftly handles a raft of characters who were actually mostly part of his X-Men legacy and X-Force runs. And uh, we've got Legion's fraught, fraught relationship with his father, Professor X, taking center stage, as well as the enigmatic Dr. Nemesis, we've got Dust, we've got the Zorn brothers, all been given really meaningful things to do. And as I say, the line work from, from Bob Quinn is just is just great. Um, this is this is this is a good book. Nice, nice. I mean you you can't go wrong really with Cy Spurrier in general, can you? Nope. You know, especially you especially when he writes Hellblazer, if you listen to this DC. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we have X number four there. Uh, we also had the return this week of a title that's been on a, a bit of a long term hiatus after the, the last I believe it was an eight issue arc. It was it was a big story, uh, which no it wasn't eight issues, a bigger part, and it was it was six issues, but mm -hmm. felt massive. Uh, which was a storyline called Prey. And um, we're, of course, talking about Donny Kate's Thor run. So it returned this week with uh, issue 15 and a brand new uh, story arc with yeah. quite the uh, quite the unique title, or maybe it's, not. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, uh, the, the, it's a three-part story arc called Revelations, which, as you suggest, seems to be a popular word selection in, uh, in our particular form of media this week. And, um, you know... As you say, Prey was a fairly impactful uh, storyline, as was the, the, the beginning storyline, the previous storyline that Kate's did on Thor. As this explores why Mjolnir uh, continues to become heavier and less controlled for the Odin son, and uh, through it, it's shown his own vulnerabilities, the possibility that, that through his kingship, he may no longer be worthy to wield the power of Thor. Yeah, there were some really, really great scenes in this. It was... It, it's strange to call it a quieter issue of Thor because there is, of course, a big massive fight sequence in the middle featuring the Avengers and so forth. But I thought it was the quieter scenes that were much more impactful. You know, Thor is trying to deal with Mjolnir not responding to him in the same way. He's having trouble lifting it. You know, he's had a few drinks as well. So he's in, you know, feeling sorry for himself. But I thought the two page scene with uh, Loki was fantastic and where Loki lifts the hammer as if it's, you know, it ain't no thing, as you will. And, mm -hmm. and I'm enjoying the relationship between Thor and Loki so far. I mean, it's I thought it was actually kind of funny, cheeky and really nice at the same time that he was like, I cannot lift it. So he holds the hammer and then pulls Thor up. And then Thor yeah. says, you mustn't tell a soul. Do you understand? I think the relationship they're exploring here is really, really cool. Yeah, I'll be interested to see what they what they do with Loki. Um, they're, they're going to be stuck in an interesting quandary now after the Loki TV series and sort of pitching them nearly as a hero. Mm -hmm. um, we'll, we'll see what happens here. But yeah, I mean, through the really fantastic pencils by uh, Michelle Bandini and with uh, Elisabetta D'Amico helping out on inks and colours by Matt Wilson, you really feel that 
the sorrow and sullen nature of Thor um, in every panel very much it echoes the weight that he now feels in Mjolnir and possibly you know in the crown now in his head you know in his new role as as the king of Asgard and there's some epic you know full page and double page splashes with loads of detail especially you know in the, in the costumes and, and, and so forth yeah, I find the art very strong in it, and and that's strange in a way. I suppose it shouldn't be. I shouldn't say strange because they're always going to put you know good artists on top top titles. But with Thor in general, I find Nick Klein's art to be one of the biggest selling points for the series. It's so rock and roll and scratchy and rough around the edges, but epic and so forth. So I'm slightly wary of change sometimes, but but they've managed it really well and really interestingly in Thor so far. You know, Klein did the first arc, which I think was called the Devourer King. And then Aaron Cooter took over and did a two-issue arc, which was a really lovely little story arc, actually, uh, which was great, and that allowed Klein to then get ahead and focus on Prey. So hopefully, I really hope that's what's happening here. You know, I, I hope that this is going to be the same artist for these three issues, and again, let's Klein get ahead, and he'll be back after this this three-issue arc. Mm, yeah, that, that, I think you're right. That, that, would be, that would be nice if that was the case. Um, I certainly hope it is. And... I mean, I think fairly special in this issue is the conversation between Thor and Cap, um, who Thor turns to, noting for the first time that I can recall the relief that Thor feels whenever he returns to Midgard to find his companions still alive, thanks to the relative difference between a god's lifespan and a mortal's lifespan, and therefore their perception of time. Um, you know, he... Thor could get drunk and oversleep, and you know it could <laughs> it could be it could be Cap's lifetime, you know that sort of thing. It's poignant stuff, and you know it's adding something new to the character. I think. Well, it's interesting you talk about that scene, you know, with Captain America, because I know in the past you've certainly from reading Donny Kitt's Venom, you said you hope he never writes Spider Man. You you just don't really Ooh. like his depiction of the character. I I know there are one or few one or two people who maybe listen to this pod who have told us that they hope Kitt's never writes a Captain America title based on his de- depiction of the character here. I mean, what were your thoughts on how you handled Cap? Um, I mean, I think it's it's maybe the same thing. It's maybe that, you know, he's writing a Thor story and, you know, Spidey and in this case Cap are just, uh, well, they're, they're chosen for a specific reason, but they're they're there to bounce, for Thor to bounce off mm-hmm. uh, and for a particular reason, a particular way. So, so maybe it could be that. You're used to seeing them front and centre and whenever you don't, it maybe it maybe knocks you for six a wee bit. Yeah, um, could be that. But I, I mean, I, I didn't. He has a wee bit back and forth. Um, but no, I didn't. I didn't. I wouldn't say I've said I had a particular problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's always nice to see the, you know, the, the 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 soldier, the the World War Two soldier sitting sitting face to face with the god. <laughs> well, I mean, it was interesting that it seemed to be this big massive battle scene. And then Thor just comes down, does some lightning, and the scene's over. It it sort of makes the rest of the Avengers look a bit weak. I thought. Well, you know, it's Thor. At the, whenever he arrives, he's got his own thoughts, his, his own concerns. He doesn't even notice really they're in battle. And then he's like, "Oh, sorry, excuse me." You know, calls that calls the thunder. Um. So yeah, no, uh, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was really interesting. But as I say, it's nice to see, you know, that Thor. You know, respects Cap enough to ask his advice in a way. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, it's bit, it's great to have the title back in general. You know, I've I've enjoyed this from the very very start, and 
as you said, it, it seems like Kate's is not just wrestling's laurel. He is trying to add something to the character. Yeah, I mean, I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying as, as you know, as I mentioned earlier, what he's adding to the mythos and to the nuance of the character and the idea that as a king, it might be time for Thor to leave an in inverted commas childish things behind his identity as black with prey, his life as a hero of Midgard, and his possibly his hammer uh, behind him mm-hmm. uh, in order to fully embrace the role of the role of king and how willing will he be to do that this is true so yep that is issue 15 then of thor which uh, is the start of the three issue story arc revelations uh, from donny kitts so yeah that is that we just one last one that gets its customary honorable mention as every issue is fantastic and that is conan the barbarian this is up to number 23 and this was part five of land of the lotus and it's an interesting one because it says part five this felt very much like the end of this story but at the same time the last page does say to be continued well yeah i mean the 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 series is obviously to be continued but i think we're moving on to another arc um as as conan finally escapes from the land of the lotus um, that story started in issue 19 and to me from start to finish it's felt like reading a story from Conan's creator Robert E. Howard um, you know back in the day yeah I've really enjoyed this whole arc as well it's just solid fun fantasy fair it's you know we've talked at length before about me coming to the series late and then becoming more and more of a convert and as I read this one actually I, as I say I went a big reading binge this week I managed to source all 12 issues of Savage Sword of Conan which mm-hmm. was the sister series to this when it launched, and Jim Zub wrote some stories there as well. So um, I'm becoming a fully fledged, you know, swords and sorcery kind of guy, I would appear. <laughs> swords and sandals, isn't that it? Um, <laughs> but yeah, this is just week to week. It's solid storytelling from Jim Zub, conveyed beautifully by Corey, Corey Smith. Um, I don't think there's any better fantasy comic on the stands. It's just brilliant. Well, there may be a challenger for its crown next week, though it will only be in uh, hardcover format because it's uh, the collection of The Last God is coming out, which I know you, you speak very, very highly of uh, as, as a DC sword, sandals and sorcery epic. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Conan 23 right there. So we'll finish off with an indie and uh, the quietest indie week in the history of the store, I would say, <laughs> uh, yeah. certainly for us too. Um, so the, the only the only indie book that I read this week uh, was Skybound X number two by a cacophony of uh, creators. And we probably need to mention it because it was one of the only books, <laughs> the indie books that came out this week, but also because it was a it was a great um, issue two of the anthology series celebrating 10 years of Skybound storytelling. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very much settling into uh, its its structure now, I think. It's, of course, being front-loaded by the story Rick Grimes 2000. I think that's probably its most unique selling point. Uh, it's, of course, a brand-new story. It's almost an alternate Walking Dead story. But what they, they do is they always highlight two different titles from the, the Skybound history from the last 10 years, tell a short story in that universe, and then they seem to be uh, showcasing a title that's going to launch through the Skybound Comet range next year, which is the All Ages title as well. So, as you say, a lot of great talent involved in this one. I mean, you've got Kirkman and, and Otley on Rick Grimes 2000. You have series creators Joshua Williamson and Andre Bressan on the Birthright story. The uh, Skybound Comet title I was speaking about is Everyday Hero Machine Boy, which is created by Treve Young and Irma Novella. 
And then you finally have Stillwater, which is, uh, of course, Chip Zdarsky and Ramon K. Perez, who were the creators of that title. And, you know, first up, Rick Grimes 2000 is just so much fun. I mean, I I love me some Walking Dead. As we all know, I keep breaking the rules just to talk about it in honorable mentions. But I would take a whole full series of it. It's just so much fun. I mean, the nods to all the characters that we know and love are fantastic. The character entrances are brilliant. And, and Ran Otley is very much at home here in the ridiculously over-the-top depictions of violence. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more with, uh, with, with everything you just said there. Um, really enjoying it. It's just, it's just good fun. There's no baggage. There's no hang-ups. There's, it's just reintroduced in a different way to characters that you know from the TV series or, or sorry, from the comic book series. And uh, yeah, I think it's it's a great we great we sort of kind of tribute. I don't know if you noticed the uh, the most toilet humor and uh, ridiculous joke of the week in this issue. It's uh, graffiti on the wall, so it's about eight pages in, and uh, the governor's about to be attacked by a horde of zombies. And there's two walls you can see in the background. So some of the graffiti is, you know, apocalypse kind of sucks. Some of it is walkers go home. Some of it is a peace sign. One of them is die alien scum. And then if you look bottom left of the wall and top left of the wall, it may be the most immature thing that uh, <laughs> Ryan Otley has put in the comics. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, and uh, yeah, he's, I mean, he's, he's got a, he's, 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 he's got more than, than one sort of, sort of fairly immature piece of graffiti up there but yeah, uh, yeah well, well not spoil the surprise we'll let you uh search that out yourselves dear listeners but uh it made me laugh anyway but yeah mm. no getting to the other stories in the anthology i mean for me Stillwater was where it was at this week this was a fantastic story best story in this week's one and that again is no small feat given how much fun walking dead is but you know and i'm already a big fan of Stillwater as it is but i feel a short story definitely added to the mythos I mean, trust Sadarsky to tell an emotional story in less than 10 pages with three characters. Um, and introducing a new character here, I think, that'll feed into the, the next arc. Yep, that's exactly it. So, But yeah, it's a really emotional little story about, you know, uh, coming to terms with what this place actually means in terms of having a pet, in terms of, you know, making those connections with, with animals and so forth. And yeah, and, you know, there's some emotional stuff here with, a character who did manage to leave Stillwater as well. I mean, there was this great little scene where, you know, this little boy is talking about how his grandmother just walked off into the woods and she sort of looked back at him and just disappeared off. And who knows if we'll circle back to that as well. But yeah, I was really impressed with that wee story. And then just to suppose uh, a final mention would be Birthright. You were saying this this has you interested. Yeah, I've never I've never followed up on, on Birthright, never read an issue. Uh, it is, of course, a joshua williams um joint so uh between that and, and what i just read i may be interested in and certainly having a closer look i should circle back as well just to the, the last page of the uh, the rick grimes 2000 story as we as we're introduced to uh or reintroduced to this uh this story's version of andrea who clearly is going to make rob liefeld happy uh, <laughs> because there is such a big gun so many shoulder pads and pouches and knee pads that uh, that Rob is going to be a happy man looking at, at Rick Grimes' 2000 Andrea. I think she is essentially Cable with Andrea's head and boobs. 
<laughs> but yeah, it goes back to what I was saying. The character entrances are uh, are superb, and just you just know Kirkman's having so much fun with this. So. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, been really enjoying Skybound X, and that was indeed issue two. So that is going to do it for the old honorable mentions. We will just finish off uh, this week's titles with our picks of the week, and. I'm delighted to say it's a DC clean sweep and these titles may have even been interchangeable because what you went with, which we'll certainly get to, is something that I messaged you straight after reading and just went, that was phenomenal. Uh, But we'll get to that in a moment. Before that, we're going to look at my pick of the week, which is The Joker. And it's probably about the third time I've picked it as my pick of the week. But this issue is actually doing something a little bit different. I mean, I've been really enjoying the main narrative of The Joker so far, which of course is... You know, Gordon being given the chance to go and kill the Joker, being hired by some, you know, nefarious and mysterious people. He's at the end of his career. He's had a lifetime of nothing but pain from the Joker. So, you know, he's actively considering it. There's been a great exploration of his relationship with uh, his daughter, who he knows is Batgirl. And, you know, he let that slip a couple of issues ago. And it's already been a brilliant title. Of course, James Tinney in the fourth I'm writing and uh, Guillaume March on art. But this one changes it up slightly, so it does. This actually, it does have Tinian's name first, but I think that's more of a selling tool because when you get to the end of the story, it actually says Matthew Rosenberg with James Tinian. So I'm sure he acted as a consultant or maybe sketched out a a part of it. But there's an artist change here as well. Uh, Francesco Francavia is taking over from a series regular Guillaume March. And the reason it works is because this is a one-shot story. This is not continuing the main narrative from where we left at the end of issue four. And if you're going to do a creator change on a title, this is how you do it. You bring in Matthew Rosenberg, you bring in Francesco Francavia to tell a story essentially from Joker's past. Yeah, I mean, as you say, this is a this is a, a change of gears. Uh, Rosenberg, not the first time we've mentioned him in this podcast, and an exploration of, uh, as you said, Gordon and Joker's shared history, Joker's first night in Arkham, and the beginning of an obsession uh, of Gordon's that will go on, I think, to destroy his life and, and, and family. I guess in a large part, you know that that obsession I think uh, has been very much a a core for Gordon since he since he came to Gotham, and I think this could have tacked onto the back of uh, Batman Year One quite handily. I mean that in itself is an interesting point that you make of of Gordon's obsession with the Joker, when of course we always just associate Batman with his obsession with the Joker. So it's it it just shows how the Joker gets under your skin that he can do it to them all, but. Yeah, I mean, mentioning, you know, Rosenberg, of course, you know, you're going to get a really strong story, but I'm a huge fan of the artist. Uh, Francesco Francavia doesn't do enough work for my liking. He's he's a, an Italian artist who very much specializes in covers, but also does like different media. He does movie posters. He does vinyl sleeves. He does, he's done like Criterion Edition Blu-ray covers and stuff like that. But when it comes to the comic side of things, he, he worked on Afterlife with Archie. He also worked on my one of my favorite Batman stories of all time, which you know is the Black Mirror. So Scott Snyder and Jock, of course, mm. but but the Black Mirror was the, divided into two stories. You essentially had the Dick Grayson as Batman and James Junior story, and that was illustrated by Jock. And then you had the Gordon story about certain cases that he never solved, and they always gnawed away at him. And it was called the Skeleton Key, or Skeleton Cases, I think. And that was illustrated by Frank Avia. And I'm just a huge fan of his work and. It just screams classic noir, I think. Yeah, I think I think Rosenberg's writing positions this squarely in that 
know, our place that, that Gordon has inhabited before and Frankie Avelli's art just builds that noir world up around him then, you know. But this is a great series, whether uh, Tinian's on it or whether Rosenberg's on, on writing duties. It's just, it's, it's a great, great series. Yeah, very much so. And and again, just to bring it back to it being a, a one-shot story, it's we're essentially going back to the Joker's first night in Gotham. And it seems, in, in Gordon's mind anyway, it's like he's the only one who realizes how dangerous this man is and how dangerous he'll become. Everyone else is just like, he's behind bars, he's fine, he's this, he's that. But as you were talking about, you know, and, and at the start about Gordon's obsession and so forth, I mean, we've so many examples in this issue of how Gordon will always be a cop first and a family man second and that he is destined to live a very lonely life. I mean, these are sowing the seeds for the main Joker story where, you know, he was almost trying to justify in his head like the Joker really did destroy my life right from the very start. It just feeds in effortlessly to that idea. And talking about that lonely life i think the last page is particularly haunted it's you know or haunting i should say you know he comes back late it should have been an anniversary dinner with his his family there's wine spilled on the table which spells out the word joker which is a a beautiful little touch it's that classic you know cold dinner you're too late for coming home you know there's 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 also scenes in it where he's indulging in couples counseling with his wife but he could not be any you know less interested he's he's barely paying attention he's he's thinking about the joker and he's thinking about like crime and gotham during that there's brilliant stuff with harvey dent in it as well which you know links quite nicely to stories like the long halloween where you have that relationship between uh gordon dent and batman as well because you know, Gordon essentially messes up. He should have been part of a, a sting operation on Falcone, but he's too busy sitting outside the Joker's cell, and the Joker's not going anywhere. Uh, it's just a fantastic one-shot. So it is. It, it's it's an illustration of how good the Joker title has been, that this ties in so perfectly for it, but it's also just a brilliant one-shot on its own. And as you say it, I, I, I want to go back to something you said earlier about uh, Wildcats and fulfilling the potential of Infinite Frontier. That's what this issue is. This issue, as you say... You could slide it onto the end of Batman Year One. You can Ooh. see parallels to the long Halloween with that trinity of characters. It exists with this title. You know, because it's a one shot, you can you can almost place it within the DC past, which I think is really, really clever. Uh, but yeah, it's just a, it's a great way of ushering in a new creative team and allowing hopefully Tinian and March to continue with the main narrative and get them ahead as well. It's it's a similar sort of practice, I suppose, to what we we're talking about with Thor. You know, guest artist doesn't have to be uh the main narrative it can almost be a side story and then let the the normal creators come along but you know i say all of this and that's two-thirds of the issue i, I don't think we really need to talk about the punchline backup do we <laughs> it's not uh it's not really doing anything for me throughout the first five issues so uh you know my, my interest in it is is certainly at a low ebb yeah i'm i'm the exact same but you know the the main title is more than good enough to justify it and again this was just another stellar issue of the joker so that was my pick of the week which is the joker number five uh predominantly written by matthew rosenberg with james tinian uh, helping as well and then francesco francavia on art so that is my pick of the week and what is yours pray tell as you said sticking with dc so for me it is the flash 2021 annual um we have, uh, let me see, we have uh, Jeremy Peterson, who is the regular writer on uh, on Flash over the past few issues uh, on here. 
uh, we have uh, Fernando Pusarin and uh, Brandon Peterson on art, Hi-Fi and uh, Michael Atelier on colours and Steve Wands on lettering. Um, so yeah, I mean, Adams, Jeremy Adams is a relative newcomer to DC. He jumped on with Future State um, and took over Flash after Joshua Williamson's lauded run on the book. And by putting Wally West back at the front and centre, he's already got my vote. And those themselves are big words. I mean, I know how much you love Joshua Williamson's Flash run. I think you you even say it's better than Tom Keane's Batman run. Well, uh, yes, uh, <laughs> that's, that's the case. And I'm also, as you know, a big fan of the DC legacy characters, um, you know, Dick Grayson and, and Wally West and, and that. And I mean, this annual is kind of funny because unlike sort of many annuals, it directly continues and concludes Adam's initial arc on the main book, which is called, it's, it's called The Surge. And that's the quantum leak like story of Wally being pulled back and forth in time to inhabit the bodies of various speedsters in order to heal or eject something unpalatable from the speed force itself as something that is threatening to destroy the speed force. But, you know, other than the conclusion of the arc and setting up Wally as the, isn't it the Earth Zero Flash? Isn't Earth Zero the, the prime Earth? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're, you're probably asking yourself why this would require an annual, why it's not just part of the, the main storyline you know the next issue well this is because adams does something very special here and removes the guilt that has been dogging wally slowing him down since tom king's hero in crisis and this annual serves as an epilogue to that story and i think does so brilliantly yeah i mean i've heard some people talk about it that this issue is essentially correcting the mistakes of heroes in crisis with how you know wally is treated and so forth and it almost maybe makes heroes in crisis null and void but i would argue quite 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 strongly that without heroes in crisis the catharsis here would be nowhere near as strong or as powerful yeah i mean i i agree with you i don't think it makes heroes in crisis null and void at all um i i really don't i mean DC has been treating Wally fairly harshly since they, they they reintroduced him and he became you know they reintroduced him as the as the hope of the rebirth era in the the, the DC rebirth one shot. You remember that lovely scene where where uh, you know he was the Flash brought him back you know out of the out of the Speed Force. His wife, however, didn't remember him. His children never existed, and then. Heroes of Crisis came along and made Wally responsible for the deaths of several severely traumatized heroes who were uh, who were being treated at the sanctuary, including Roy Harper, one of his dearest friends. You know, so DC had put Wally forward as a symbol of hope in the rebirth there, and then turned around and sort of kind of shed all over that hope, uh, which sort of sounds like the work of Dan DiDio to me, if you ask, uh, if, if if it was asked. You know, not being a fan of. Of, of legacy characters in the same way, you know, I just profess to be. And then more recently, DC had another change of heart and tried to rehabilitate the character. And Scott Lobdell and Brett Booth splash forward, started the process of restoring his family and giving him a new mission to fix the DCU. And then Dark Knight's death metal, specifically speed metal, saw Wally reconcile with his friends and family. But the events of Heroes in Crisis still weighed very heavily on him. The original Heroes in Crisis story posits that an unstable Wally who himself was being treated at the Sanctuary was unable to contain a surge in his speed force which caused the explosion and the tragedy that occurred in Heroes in Crisis. And with 
the surge is currently taking place at Adam's storyline. That's what the storyline's called, the surge. Uh, this was either pre-planned or it was a hell of a neat retcon that allowed Adams to get Wally past what's been holding him back to absolve him of his guilt and to get him ready to take his place as the Flash. I'm going to say it was all part of the plan. <laughs> I, I think there's maybe something nicer to thinking of. I mean, how clever was it of Adams to go, actually, I need to do this. How do you do this? Mm-hmm. Oh, look, there was a there was an unexplained surge of, of power from the Speed Force, from Wally's Speed Force and Heroes in Crisis. You know, so, yeah, it, you know, maybe we'll never know. <laughs> but, I mean, that's not to say that Wally gets away scot-free you can see what i did there they are that, um, is, that is that is next level meta joke right there <laughs> it's a miracle you got that joke in there um <laughs> it's uh and uh, yeah you know in a, in a in reference in a tom king book as well um he doesn't get away with it because as time is slowed down ahead of the surge only wally who's leapt into his home his own heroes in crisis era body and his best bod roy harper are present and conscious and with the foreknowledge that although Wally is innocent, the, stu- the surge is still going to have to take place in order to eject Wally and the villain who's caught in the Speed Force's craw. Turns out that's Savitar, the Speed God, who I only really knew from the Flash TV series. Uh, so this surge has to take place to eject them into the present day. And in doing so, that surge will cause the death of Roy and the other heroes and Crisis victims just the same. So as you can see, Heroes in Crisis isn't null and void. Um, and suddenly, you know, with that tragic inclusion with Roy, it becomes clear why Green Arrow has been hanging out in the future or in the present day alongside uh, Barry and Mr. Terrific as he tries to, to to rescue Wally. And, you know, you've got Green Arrow here beseeching and threatening the two scientists to do something to save his surrogate son, that surely this is the second time around he can do something. You know, so it's it's quite poignant, but it's also all a little undermined by Roy's recent resurrection in Williamson's Infinite Frontier book. But still, you know, very enjoyable and great comic melodrama. Yeah, I loved all this part. I mean, despite it being a flash annual, you know, some of the best scenes were reserved for Roy Harper and so forth. And, and you really feel Oliver's pain as well. He's like, I need to save my son, save my son. But I really love the whole sort of, you know, Roy Harper looking directly you know, at, at Wally essentially, mm-hmm. but he's talking to Oliver and, you know, that really pulled at the heartstrings, actually. I thought it was, yeah, thought it was yeah. brilliant writing. Yeah, I know. I, I think you're right there. I think so. Again, you know, you've got great forethought here by Adams, including Green Arrow five issues ago, knowing that this was coming up uh, just for those, just for those moments, you know, so very much enjoyed that. And then you've got Wally whenever he turns to the present and they've sort of uh, dealt with, with Savitar. Uh, reinvigorated to take on the role that he was ready to relinquish at the start of, of Adamson's run. Barry gives him this flash ring that contains what seems to be Wally's new costume. It's fairly classic silver edgy, no extra new 52 lines, just the classic red spandex with some nods to Wally's sort of more pre-flashpoint costume, um, like sort of the white the white isolates, you know. So great art by uh, Fernando Passeron and uh, Brandon Peterson. I mean... The artwork matches the power of the story, and you know the two of them are tag teaming in art duties. Peterson has this very bold style, you know, suited Flash well these past few months, and and Passeron, you know, very much proves that that you know he's the equal uh, to that in this in this annual colors by Hi-Fi and 
and Michael Atiyah, they really pop on the page and each panel just looks really nearly glowing, you know. Great issue to end a great arc, uh, reintroducing Wally as the Flash and also a great example, I think, of how to retcon respectively. Tom King's story still stands, but without an ending that is a problem for Wally West fans like myself and might just make Heroes in Crisis more valuable on the reread. Um, if there's a downfall here, it's that the annual depends on maybe you knowing those other stories, what's come before on Adamson's run, Heroes in Crisis. Um, but, I mean, I thought Adams did a great job of bringing us up to speed. But boom, boom, there's another one. <laughs> <laughs> and I certainly didn't feel lost, but that said, I've, I've read those aforementioned you know series and issues um i would say if you haven't been following adam's flash run up until this this might be a really decent uh, point to to hop onto it actually yeah i think that's fair i mean it's obviously because we are such seasoned readers i mean that's actually a really good point i never even considered that we obviously push heroes in crisis in the store a lot we had lots of people on it so this would be just a natural progression story wise but yeah for the uninitiated you might be slightly confused and I suppose it also toes that line where, you know, you might want to go back and fill in the gaps, but one of the joys of Heroes in Crisis, I thought, was the mystery of who had done it. Mm. Well, now you know before you go into it, so it'll lose that a little bit, but I still think it's a it's a very worthwhile story, and it's actually in need of a revisit. I think you're right when you're you're talking about there. It might just sort of help you reevaluate it a wee bit. I think it is definitely due a wee reread, but yeah, I, I love this. I mean, I... I messaged you straight away after it. I thought it was emotional. I thought it was heroic. I thought it was fast-paced. I thought it had great sci-fi elements. I thought it was really clear storytelling. And, of course, it had that thing that you love more than anything. Clean lines. <laughs> clean lines. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, great, great issue. So, was as I say, that would have been very high on my pick this week as well. So, uh, I'm, I'm very glad you were able to able to highlight it there. So, that is the Flash Annual 2021. So, that brings an end then to our uh, podcast in terms of our review section. We'll finish off as we always do with the titles to look forward to for the next new comic book day. Of course, we're recording this on the 26th of July, so the next new comic book day is the 28th of July. So these are the titles we're looking forward to most. Uh, the first one for me is one that Keith couldn't care less about anymore, but I'm going to get him back on this title, I'm determined. So uh, for me, Batman Reptilian 2 hits this week, and that is Garth Ennis writing, Liam Sharp on art. So a little blur for this one is Batman hits the streets in search of the creature terrorizing Gotham's underworld and hits them hard. First up is the lair of the penguin, but Oswald Cobblepot is at death's door, which is better off than the beast left many of his cronies. The mangled rogue has no answers for Batman, but his blood and the surprising secrets that it holds will send the vigilante even deeper into the darkness. So inject that into my veins, uh, as well as Daredevil 32, which any week there's new Daredevil is a good week. Uh, we're continuing on this brilliant run by chip sadarsky destined to go down as one of the great runs i think you've got mike hawthorne on art and marco chichetto is on covers admittedly the title's a little far behind but uh, the title is lockdown starts here we're trying to get out of lockdown chip do you mind uh the angel of death has come to hell's kitchen in new york city a series of grisly murders tests electra's metal and commitment to her new role as the new daredevil as the city spirals in a state of near panic Meanwhile, Matt Murdock faces tests and challenges of his own as the inmates he's serving time alongside aren't the ones in prison targeting him. 
So Daredevil 32. And then the last one for me, it's that man Tom Keen again. And we're just like we're starting to get towards the end of Rorschach. We're also coming towards the end of Strange Adventures in this week's season, the release of number 11. Uh, so Tom Keen writing. And then this is a title that shares dual artists, which are Evan Doc Shaner and Mitch Dreads. And for this one, chapter 11, Adam Strange may save the world, but can he save his marriage? There are things that happened in the original war with the marauding Picts that Adam never told his wife, Alana, and she wants answers now. Adding fuel to the fire is the possibility that he didn't just deceive her, but entire galactic civilizations in his quest for victory, which raises the question, how much has been true in the stories he's told Earth to mobilize its greatest heroes against an invasion right there at home? This is the big one before the finale. Massive secrets are revealed as two timelines rush towards a collision. Mm. That is going to be good. Uh, what are your three picks then, Keith? Uh, for me, I have got Chris Condon and Jacob Phillips. That Texas Blood number eight. Uh, that's part two of story arc Eversol 1981. Uh, as P.I. Harlan Eversol reveals his wild cult theories to a reluctant but desperate sheriff's office. Um, that's my my first. My second, we've got uh, Tom Taylor and uh, John Timms on the first issue of Superman, Son of Kal-El from DC. Uh, Jonathan Kent has experienced a lot in his young life. He's fought evil with uh, Robin, Damian Wayne, travelled across that galaxy with his Kryptonian grandfather and lived in the future with the Legion of Superheroes who were intent on training him for the day his father could no longer be Superman. There is a hole in the Legion's history that prevents John from knowing exactly what will happen, but all signs point to it being very soon. It's a time for the son to wear the cape of his father and continue the never-ending battle as a symbol of hope for his home planet. Uh, I mean, this is Tom Taylor on this, so I would say this is going to be brilliant. Um, remember, probably... I said, remember I said I wasn't much of a Superman guy? <laughs> no, yeah, I am. <laughs> Follow creators. And then, uh, lastly, uh, I'm looking forward to Brian Hill and Priscilla Petretti's, uh finale of their... Um, their Cold War era espionage synthwave thriller uh, in Chariot Number no. Five. Uh, as we know, the Chariot was a Cold War era secret government project to provide its star agent with a weapon unlike any other in the form of a supercharged muscle car. It sank into the ocean decades ago, and the agent along with it, now a petty criminal looking to reform his life, has stumbled upon the Chariot, and he's about to find out that the engine's, con engine's consciousness is still controlling it. Uh, in this concluding issue, Gillian. The, uh, the formerly named uh, secret agent battles her technologically supercharged sister in both reality and cyberspace. So I'm looking forward to seeing where this goes and where it might go beyond this. Yeah, because it definitely has a lot to wrap up in just one issue, I mm -hmm. would say. So, But yeah, that's been a great series. And uh, of course, it'll hopefully get a bigger audience after it was announced it's going to be adapted for live action. So... Again, just like Masters of the or Masters of the Universe Revelations, that adaptation is targeted at Keith. <laughs> so that is going to do it for us for this week. So again, those were our picks of the best titles from the 14th of July. So yeah, we'll be back next week, hopefully uh, not too much later than normal. But yeah, there will be a slight delay just with that uh, that trip over to England for myself and Vicky. Uh, and again, you can uh, go into the store and annoy Keith for a couple of days and... Uh, you know, pick pick his brain about the best things to read in store. There are he will have plenty of good recommendations for you. So uh, that was fun as always, my friend, and uh, a massive thanks to everybody for listening. And uh, I will see you in store very soon, my friend.
Uh, indeed, indeed. And just before we sign off, Alan, we've got an email there from a uh, a creator who uh, is looking forward to being interviewed by us on the podcast in the near future. Our reputation continues to precede us. <laughs> More details yep, coming will, soon. Uh, I'll see you in the store on uh, on Wednesday. I'll look forward to it. And uh, as uh, as you said before, I'll be I'll be there all weekend. So uh, if anybody's listening, just please be. Please be gentle. <laughs> I'm sure they'll all look after you. Anyway, thanks again for listening, guys, and I uh, look forward to seeing you in the store soon. Good night. So I've been Alan Taylor, and this has been Keith Miller. You can find Alan in store at Coffee and Heroes and on Twitter, where Alan is at Coffee and Heroes 1, and I'm Ascanison00. Coffee and Heroes is a local comic book shop, coffee shop, and community hub in Northern Ireland, based at Smithfield Market in the centre of Belfast. You can find Coffee and Heroes on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram or email us at coffeeandheroes at hotmail.com. Make sure to check out our YouTube channel as well. The Coffee and Heroes podcast is available on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts and through all good podcast platforms. Please like and subscribe and leave a review so more people can find us. And until next time, happy reading and hope to see you in store.